Hey, Edge of Sports listeners, this is Dave Zirin. If you live in Seattle, you got to come out to Town Hall Seattle on January 5th. I'll be interviewing Seattle Seahawk Michael Bennett, otherwise known as Moses Bread 72. I'm going to be talking to Michael Bennett about sports, politics, and everything in between by one of the most thoughtful guys out there. Details to get tickets in the description of this podcast. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Today we speak to the best basketball writer of the last 50 years, longtime Sports Illustrated scribe, Jack McCallum. It drives me nuts when people my age talk about how much better it was back then. I say, man, you don't know what you're watching with LeBron, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Russell Westbrook, James Harden. If you don't think these guys are good, you're just not watching. We talk to Captain Jack about how the elections will affect this generation of political NBA players and how the players of yesteryear compare to today's superstars. Also, we speak about what it would look like if Donald Trump could appoint the sports commissioners of our major sports leagues. And usually we give you a Just Stand Up award for athletes who are speaking out. Today, we're giving a Just Stand Down award for some athletes who tried to organize for something they really had no business organizing around. Take it easy, champ. Why don't you stop talking for a while? Maybe sit the next couple plays out. You know what I mean? Jack McCallum, you probably saw, as I saw, that the Obama years saw an unprecedented number of NBA players become vocal, much more so than in the 1980s and 90s. What do you think Trump in office will mean for that, if you had to predict? I would think that there will be continued protest. There'll be a lot of pushback. But what I worry about is the reaction on the other side, I, I think that some of the things, you know, the, the way that LeBron and Chris Paul and Carmelo Anthony spoke out, it seemed to be, to me, a little bit of maybe grudging acceptance by some people that athletes were entitled to speak out. Now, I just worry that the opposite is going to, you know, the shut up and sing mentality yeah. is going to kind of overwhelm the positive way that people might look at it. And there's so many things to worry about with the Trump presidency. But one of the things I wouldn't worry about was I wouldn't think that guys will shut up. I would think that to the best of their ability, that there will continue to be the kind of protest, very dignified, very thoughtful that were started by people like uh, LeBron, Carmelo, Chris Paul, Dwayne Wade, those folks. Now, NBA players can, of course, play an important role in whether or not this Trump presidency is normalized or whether it's resisted against. I mean, you might have heard Richard Jefferson say that he did not think any NBA team would visit the White House after a championship. Do you think that that's something that could actually hold? Because that could be really significant and really symbolic for people who want to see this administration challenged. Well, the other thing going on, as you certainly know, since you did that great podcast, is it's not only the African-American players that are speaking out. Here we have the Greg Popoviches, the Stan Van Gundys, Steve Kerrs, people that are really the business face of the franchise in a way that the players aren't, speaking out where the pushback is going to come and where the uh, push is going to come to shove is with ownership. 
although the NBA is certainly a more, use the most surface word, liberal organization than other leagues, including the ownership, there's still the mentality among owners that this is not good for business. Mm. Whereas you have a guy like Mark Cuban, who's willing to speak out against Trump, you don't have very many owners. So it's going to be hard to see how much the owners are going to uh, accept this and whether or not it becomes an issue among teams where you have athletes that want to speak out and ownership that thinks it's uh, deleterious to the bottom line. You know Mark Cuban. You've talked to Mark Cuban. Did it surprise you at all to see those photos emerge of Mark Cuban within days of the election sitting down with Steve Bannon, uh, the most odious of of Trump's advisors? You know, Mark, he's a billionaire. And one of the strangest things, Dave, was that in the middle of Cuban's sometimes very creative criticisms of Trump, there he is barring reporters from his arena. Yeah, I saw that. Which to me was one of the most extraordinary things I've seen. Like I wouldn't even, why would that even occur to him to do it? And despite the reasons he offered for it, it was a bunch of nonsense. He was just kind of, you know, mad that he wasn't getting the kind of coverage. I'm going to take my ball and go home. So, you know, I hope that more of his true colors were shown during his very legitimate protests of Trump. But I fear the other thing might have happened, that he might have gone back. And the money club is the money club. And it's very hard once you're in the money club to really go against it. You know, speaking of the money club and going against it, I had this remarkable time a couple of weeks ago that I've spoken about on the podcast where I interviewed Greg Popovich and Cornell West on a stage in front of several hundred San Antonio high school students. And Greg Popovich and Cornell West, as you might imagine, spoke out very strongly against Trump and his agenda. And interestingly, in the crowd were members, in addition to all these uh, East San Antonio high school students, were members of the Holt family who were all Trump supporters. And I thought it was fascinating that Greg Popovich felt not the slightest compunction about saying what he felt in front of these owners. And it just made me think about how singular Greg Popovich is at this moment in time. I know you just spoke to him recently. Uh, what, what is your opinion of Greg Popovich, his politics, and how much influence does it have around the league that this 60-something coach is willing to speak out against Trump? I happened to be in San Antonio just several days ago. And I think the surprising thing is that, you know, Pop was an Air Force intelligent officer. This culture of San Antonio Spurs is looked upon as sort of the NBA counterpart to the New England Patriots. But as you know, and I know, and everybody around who's ingrained in the league know, it's not that at all. Mm-hmm. It's, that's the surface part of it is it's very disciplined you know, we don't shoot our mouth off in public very much. We don't get into trouble. We keep things in our locker room. We're very efficient. We're very disciplined. We're very good. So I think over the years, the idea that Pop was sort of a Belichickian automaton grew, whereas those of us who knew him, who used to talk politics with him and everything like that, knew that it was, in fact, just the opposite. It could be an amazing example when guys like him talk out. But you still have to remember that even during our conversations about it, Pop doesn't want to spend an hour 
talking about, I mean, he'll do it, but every day he doesn't feel his job is to stand up and talk about politics and there's going to be a limit to it. And I got to coach my team and I got to get to the playoffs and I got to win a championship. The key is if other people start doing it, that it just doesn't remain with uh, Van Gundy, Kerr and pop Mm -hmm. that around the league, we start to see, you know, Doc Rivers talk about a little bit, which he probably has. When somebody like Pop does say something, it is very important. But we got to remember, Dave, it's still the league, and it's still about winning basketball games. And I think it can have an influence, but how pervasive that influence is, I'm really just not sure yet. Because it's a fascinating pivot moment for the league because – You have Trump coming into office, the cutting of that direct link that so many players had to the White House and to maybe a sense of political confidence that that engendered. And then you also have this new CBA where players, even marginal players, are likely to make a tremendous amount of money if they're able to toe the line, stay on a roster and all the rest of it. I mean, the stakes for being just being on an NBA roster right now just, I think, grew exponentially. Yeah, I mean, and it's, you know, is it business or is it politics? I mean, we saw, for example, uh, Adam Silver take pretty decisive action when the North Carolina transgender bathroom mm-hmm. stuff happened. Well, they pulled the All-Star game from there very quickly. But I still think as a league, they were very hesitant to kind of make a uh, political statement, so, uh, you know, on behalf of the entire league. So it's going to be kind of hits here and there, I think, that it's going to be little barrages of statements made from various parts of the league just here and there. But so far as a general collective statement, I still think you're dealing with a billion-dollar league with billion-dollar owners, and it's going to be very difficult to get across what might be a looked at as a cohesive political statement. I think most of it's still going to become from the African-American players and Mm -hmm. from the occasional coaches who are willing to speak out about it. And basketball, as far as I know, I haven't seen a single coach from, you know, the quote, IE authority figure from baseball, football, or hockey, or another major sport, speak out the way that Van Gundy, Steve Kerr, and Popovich have done. I might be wrong. I might no, have no. it. I, I, I don't know of that either. I um, haven't seen it. And the statements by Popovich and Van Gundy in particular, I mean, they're so strong. I mean, they're not just like, well, this is a difficult time. I mean, these are statements of, of drawing a line in the sand and saying, you're over there, I'm over here. These guys... Whatever their politics, these guys grow up, whatever their actual politics might be, they grow up as coaches. Mm -hmm. And what you do as coaches is you try to teach ethics. You try to teach some kind of sportsmanship, discipline, teamwork, standing up for each other. Those are the values you have when you get into coaching. Guys like Popovich and Kerr and Van Gundy. Well, the way that Trump ran his campaign was so antithetical to those kinds of things that you learn in sports. Never mind the, okay, we got to go out and kill the opposition. That's part of it too. But those type of things, those values that you teach when you're a coach, 
and that you adhere to were so different from the message we heard that I just, I don't think those guys could shut up. You know, I don't think it was easy for Van Gundy to do that and Kerr to do that and pop. They knew there was going to be some pushback, but it was so offensive to them what they were hearing that they had to say something. And I said that in a tweet and people wrote back, yeah, what's he do? He coaches a bunch of billionaires, big freaking deal. Well, you know, at root, when you're a coach, the, the things you try to communicate are still the same, whether you're coaching yeah, million-dollar players or whether you're coaching you know, knee-high basketball players. And what some of these guys heard from Trump, uh, I can't believe that not more people involved in sports, let's say they were Republican even, I can't believe they didn't speak out against the messages that were trumpeted throughout this guy's campaign. It's hard for me to believe that that many people in sports shut up about it. You wrote my favorite basketball book. So a little bit of a change of subject here. And my favorite, people ask me, what's your favorite basketball book? I always say it's seven seconds or less, my season on the bench with the running and gun in Phoenix Suns. And so much of that book is an appreciation of how Mike D'Antoni was changing the sport in a way that you now see reflected, uh, certainly in Golden State and the pace and space that has just taken the league by storm. Now, to me, the story of the NBA season this year is Mike D'Antoni's massive career revival in Houston. And so as someone who knows D'Antoni, I just have to ask you, what the hell happened in Los Angeles and in New York that Mike D'Antoni was not able to implement this style and what makes Houston different? Because a lot of people said D'Antoni was done. No, exactly. Yeah, there was a real doubt as to whether he was going to get another job. Well, well look at what's happened. Uh, okay, the Knicks are probably coming back, and I think Luke Walton's a good coach with the Lakers. But, I mean, the years that he was here, they were just the wrong people. And I, I saw Mike about 10 days ago, and we had dinner. Uh, we happened to be in the same place on the road. And I said to him, man, you look completely different than you had the last uh, six years, the, the frustration of the uh, Knicks franchise, first of all, with the wrong people there and the Dolan ownership, and then being there in the finality of the Kobe, great as Kobe was, kind of laying down the franchise and the injuries and Dwight Howard. Ugh. Well, now he's at a place there couldn't be any more difference on, on the outside than James Harden and Steve Nash. But Mike has got to have that guy that can deliver the ball, that has some sort of sixth sense about the floor. And obviously there was the doubt I talked to him in the summer. Well, can you get James Harden to do this? Mm -hmm. And he said, James Harden wants to be a great, great player. He doesn't want to be looked upon somebody who just comes down and guns it. He is going to run this point for me. And he's going to run it well, as well as get his points. And so far, that is exactly what's happened. You can't draw a straight line between Steve Nash, who was in Phoenix with him, and James Harden. But there's certainly the one guy that Mike needs to run that offense. Well, you can't do it also because Steve Nash looks like he was created in a lab that makes point guards. And but the audacity of looking at James Harden, looking at his body of work and saying, 
this is my point guard when superficially his reputation around the league is as somebody who's a bit of a black hole. The ball goes in and it doesn't come out. I mean, that that, that to me speaks once again to the vision question with D'Antoni, which has always been his the legendary thing about him, this idea that he can see things that other people can't see. Yeah, you're right. And what's happened now with these three-pointers, that last time I look, I think they have made, you know, 420 three-pointers so far this season. With Mike, it's, it's almost become <laughs> it's almost become like his political statement, and that is the more you tell me, the more you tell me this isn't the way to play. And we can get back to the Warriors because there's a little offshoot of the way they play. But the more you tell me this isn't going to work, the more you tell me that we can't come down there and fire up threes and spread the floor and uh, and have some fun, the more I'm going to tell you that we can. You know, mm-hmm. and that's sort of what's happened with uh, with Houston. I mean, he has surrounded himself. You know, he did get some three point shooters, and Eric Gordon. I always did think he was using kind of a sixth man. Was a really, really underrated player. You know, when he was healthy, Eric Gordon is really a uh, a terrific player. So the more you tell Mike that this system doesn't work, the more he's going to say, uh, "F you, it does work." Furthermore. And we're we're going to make an even more uh, extreme statement about it. And that's one of the things I've always respected. I'm sure you talked to him. He's a nice guy. Couldn't be more pleasant. But there is a streak of stubbornness in Mike D'Antoni that uh, you're not going to talk him out of doing things the way that he wants to do them. This, to me, is just the story of the season right now. And obviously, it's defined by the three-pointer. And that's really what comes to mind for me when I think about how different the game is compared to the game that I grew up watching in the 1980s. Now, you were a working writer for Sports Illustrated in the 1980s, so I've always wanted to ask you this question. The three-pointer obviously comes to mind, but what is the biggest difference for you when you're watching a game today compared to 30 years ago? What's the most jarring difference? Well, funny you said that because I'm I'm working on a – book of sort of I'm taking a a team from the past and a team from the present let's just say that would be the Golden State Warriors to talk about how the game was different and it's obviously something that you know you you just brought up and it's obviously the three-pointer that even if you took the innovative coaches let's say Don Nelson you know he had run TMC when he was Golden State in the 80s you know he had uh, he Mm -hmm. had Chris Mullen and Hardaway and Mitch Richmond bunch of offensively potent type of people. Even then, the three-point shot, because of the way basketball was ingrained, we got to get a good shot, we got to work it around, we got to go inside out, that it just was not part of the game. It was an afterthought, really, until maybe some of the Patino teams with the Celtics or the Patino New York teams. I, yeah, the Patino New York with the teams. The bomb they squad. come down and bomb it. But the idea of using it efficiently and as part of your offense, and hey, it's okay, and off of out-of-bounds plays and half-court plays and high pick-and-rolls, you know, usually a high pick-and-roll was designed to get you kind of in the paint and hit the roller. That came with Mike's teams with the Suns, which I was fortunate enough to be able to chronicle a little bit. And it's it's really unusual how I ask people why I asked Chris Mullen had a great interview with him a few weeks ago. 
why didn't you come off and shoot 600 threes a year? He goes, we just, it just wasn't the way it was played. It was just the idea that the three pointer was a, uh, was an afterthought. Did it occur to them or was it the sort of thing that it did not even enter the discussion? Was it part of the debate or would it have been like saying, why don't we just wear space shoes and rocket packs? Well, you know, the answer is different no matter who you talk to, but it, it kind of comes down to the fact that there was almost kind of this guilt about it, that if I was a coach and I couldn't get anything better, than a three than a three point shot, then I must be a crappy coach. What D'Antoni brought into it, and I think where he's really underrated, and to a certain extent, seven seconds or less was a little bit of a misnomer because what they were really efficient at was half court. You know, they were a really good half court mm-hmm. offensive team. They weren't necessarily coming jacking up threes off the fast break. And what he brought into it was some kind of, you know, a lot of weak side action, pick and rolls over on the side where the ball wasn't. All of a sudden it's reversed. And now somebody has a three-pointer on the other side of the floor, a three-pointer, not just an open shot. So I think that idea of trying to spring people for three-point shots, it just wasn't part of the idea because... The idea was you were supposed to work it in. You were supposed to get as close to the basket as you could. And if you could get a patterned offense that got you a shot mid-range or close to the basket, then you were a good coach. If you were a coach that had people throwing up 20, 22, 25 three-pointers a game, you were a lousy coach without discipline. And more than anything, that's obviously what Mike brought into the league. And that's the kind of thing that Kerr, is doing with Golden State. Do you trace an evolutionary line from the Paul Westhead teams at Loyola Marymount to Dan Tony to what we're seeing right now with every team doing pace and space? Or do you think this would have developed organically today with the growth of analytics, which really pushed the importance of the three-point shot? I do agree that analytics was part of it. And I do think that when you mentioned uh, Paul, some of the fun that uh, Westhead had with Loyola Marymount in college, I think, yeah, that is there. The idea that the game is free and the game is fun and let's run and let's score some points. But the idea that we're not going to play any defense at all, uh, that that's certainly not going to get you anywhere in today's uh, NBA. I said, when, when I was growing up, my favorite player was Bernard King. Could Bernard King have played this kind of pace and space style or is part of what we're dealing with now is that players are just better, that there's an evolution and that most of those eighties players, like the bulk of them would just have a tough time playing in today's league. Or am I looking at that wrong? To return to Mullen, he told me one of the most interesting things that I had never heard of. I watch, you know, I've been watching Golden State now, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, whoever, name it. They have this amazing practice facility. They're going to have an even more amazing one when they build it, uh, you know, when they yeah. when they say goodbye to Oakland, that political statement, by the way, all these years we mm-hmm. we played in Oakland. Now we're going over to this. <laughs> now that we're a brand, yep. we're moving to San Francisco, baby. Anyway, all these teams have these amazing practice facilities that has facilitated shooting particularly. 
Steph Curry might take 500, 600 shots after practice with his own shooting coach. Every position, every situation, every spot on the floor. Mullen told me that, and this is true up until maybe 10, 11, 12 years ago, you know, the Golden State Warriors would be practicing over at the Santa Clara High School gym. Well, we got to get the hell out because the girls' team is coming in. You know, it was a lot harder to work on your stuff until the league built practice facilities where the players want to hang around, the weight, uh, the mm-hmm. training rooms were all in the same place. It has really made a difference. And the impact of shooting in the NBA, I just think, is going to increase. Now, you know, the, the old guys poo-pooing, oh, I can't believe what's happening to the game. Kids are going to look at Steph Curry and uh, they're going to think that you want to shoot from uh, 25 feet from the basket and it's going to kill the game. It's just another evolution. If you become a great shooter, there's going to be a place for you in basketball. If you take 25-foot shots and you don't make any, there's not going to be a place. So it is a true evolution, the three-point shot, and it's come along a lot because players, as much as people want to believe, oh, the old guys practice better and they practice harder, it's a bunch of crap. Mm -hmm. Players work their butts off these days, and it's no accident that guys like uh, Curry, Clay Thompson, James Harden, Westbrook, Durant, it's no accident that they are great players. Trust me, they work on it. This is the question I know you got a ton of when you wrote the terrific book. And I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you. The book Dream Team, which is about the 1992 Dream Team that, that went to Barcelona, the greatest collection of basketball talent ever, Bird, Magic, Michael, Ewing, Robinson, Mullen, etc. If you took the best of that 92 Dream Team, and put them against the best players we have now. Not the Olympic team, because, of course, the Olympic team didn't have Westbrook and LeBron, but just the best players that we have now. Who wins that matchup on a neutral court right now? Each year that gets more difficult to answer because when I was asked it, you know, Kobe made his famous statement during 2012, which I totally supported him on. Yes, Kobe Bryant, could your team now beat the Dream Team? And it was a big deal when Kobe said, well, of course we could, and everybody goes, what are you kidding? What's he supposed to say? Yeah. No. <laughs> What's Kobe Bryant going to say? And back then, I remember writing or being interviewed that, yeah, Kobe Bryant, Durant, and uh, LeBron could be on the Dream Team. Don't ask me who to kick off. I mean, besides Chris, Christian Leitner. Don't ask me who to kick off that team, but those guys could play for it. Now you'd have to say probably Russell Westbrook. Would you say Chris Kalk could be a point guard? Not to avoid your question, but here's the way I would answer it. I would still pick the dream team, not because I covered it, but because that team was so unusual that the progression of athleticism that we talked about a little bit that's happened in the league, which is a factor. There's no doubt it's a factor. And now this is 25 years ago. But you still had that singular athleticism team of Michael Jordan, David Robinson, Barkley at his prime, and Mm -hmm. nobody should laugh, even if they see the somewhat corpulent gentleman sitting (laughs) at the the Turner Broadcasting Studio, (laughs) Scottie Pippen. You still had those four or five guys that in any era, they would have been incredibly athletic guys. And then you had the big men 
you had Ewing and Robinson, which I think would be a little bit different now. The idea of the somewhat traditional center. I mean, Patrick would drift out and shoot shots from the corner. David Robinson, pretty traditional center. So I think based on the fact that the athleticism of that team, even 25 years ago, was so extreme, Carl Malone, I'd even mentioned, and the fact that the inside game of it, the inside prowess of those guys was better, that I would still take the 1992 team. And I hope that's not just because things were better when I was covering it, you know, because that's not, I'm really trying to be objective about it. And I really love today's game. It drives me nuts when people my age talk about how much better it was back then. I say, man, you don't know what you're watching with Mm -hmm. LeBron, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Russell Westbrook, James Harden. If you don't think these guys are good, you're just not watching very Mm -hmm. carefully at all. This is our end of the year show, and a lot of folks have asked me, uh, what was the most amazing sports story for you this year? And for me, I always immediately go to the Cleveland Cavaliers winning that championship, being down 3-1. to one. And I think about LeBron leading both teams in points, rebounds, assists, steals, and blocks over seven games. And to me, that's the greatest single feat of any NBA player that I've ever seen. But I wanted to ask you that same question. When you look back, when you think of things like, say, Jordan against the Phoenix Suns scoring 41 a game in that series, or or maybe there's some Larry Bird-esque or Magic examples or Kareem examples that I'm not thinking of, does that LeBron example from this year's finals, is that at the top of your list of greatest single performances in any NBA playoff series? The short answer is yes. So you... You, you already did the heavy, heavy lifting for me. I mean, it was a year when the, you know, the Chicago, I'm not an amazing Major League Baseball fan, but, you know, the year the Cubs, that was pretty amazing, although uh, it was still a little bit sullied by the Cubs' uh, ownership. But that's the way it goes. It was a great tale. But they're down 3-1, to one, number one. They're playing in Golden State. You know, okay, they didn't have Draymond. You know, he, they're playing game five. <laughs> Mm-hmm. In Golden State, I mean, you you mail this thing in, it's over. And the idea that LeBron would have been universally humiliated almost had he, well, I go back to Cleveland, still can't get it done. Mm-hmm. To go back there and win that game five, come back, win game six, and then to win game seven on the road, try to think of anybody that had that kind of, you better win this pressure on you. Jordan's first one, if you recall, and I think one of the things we tend to forget is the number of years it took him to win one. Mm-hmm. Michael's uh, first year was 84, 85. 85, 86, 87, 88, 89, 90. That's six years that he was stopped short. And there was a lot of people writing I don't think I was one, but I'm sure I probably hinted at it. Can this guy win one? Yep. Is he just kind of this aerial show? You know, is he just kind of a sideshow? When he finally did win it in 91, he beat Magic's Lakers. It was sort of done so easily that by then, well, by the third, fourth game, well, this thing is over. And then he proceeded to win next two, took some time off, won the next three in a row. With LeBron, 
game seven, this thing was up in the air until the end. And the block on the Iguodala layup, I mean, still remains as one of the singular moments in NBA history. So. And, and even with all the decades of basketball that you've seen, all the memories you have, when LeBron blocks Iguodala, I mean, I'm not joking around, like a, a sharp intake of breath just went out of my chest. Did, w- w- are, you, are you still able to have that feeling after all these years? Oh, yeah. Oh, You oh, felt no that? Question. You felt that like physically with that block? I, I mean, I was sure. just like, I almost fell out of my sofa. No, no, there's no, there's no <laughs> doubt. I mean, you, you get to understand the more you cover this, how LeBron, those guys that have this sense of the court and the sense of what has to be done, uh, LeBron, Jordan, Magic certainly had it. He might even be thinking as he did that, okay, man, that's it. We, we, we erased that. Let's go win this thing. They always have like a sense of the moment. And mm-hmm. that is really uh, that is really one of the moments in NBA history. And uh, it's going to be very interesting this season. I'm, and I'm watching the season closely because I'm, I'm working on this book. It's going to be interesting to see if the Warriors and Cavs get back again whether there's a reprise of that moment or the Warriors are going to have an answer. Or who knows? Maybe it's going to be somebody completely different. But right now, it's not exactly going out on a limb to say they're the two powerhouse franchises. And, you know, the, the, the Spurs are frisky, which gets to my absolute last question for you. Tim Duncan just had his number retired. How will you remember Tim Duncan and his legacy? Well, I'll probably have this moment that when I, I we referred back to the conversation I was having with Pop and Tim has been working out pretty hard over at the Spurs facility with Pal Gasol. They've been having, you can't watch practice over there, but a couple of the Spurs writers have written a little thing about it and called it an epic one-on-one game. And I came in at the end of one practice and he was working with Pal. Anyway, I was sitting down to talk to Pop and uh, the gym is deserted and Duncan is walking off the court and Pop shouts over to him, I'm about to sit down and do another stupid interview about you. Who cares? You're completely overrated all these years. You know, this is the kind of relationship they had. (laughs) And I shouted over to Duncan, Tim, are you going to show up? You even going to bother to show up Sunday night? And Duncan shouts back, well, only if I can wear shorts. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just, obviously that's not an on the court moment. But I've never seen anybody so consistently adherent to this principle that I am not going to lift myself up. I don't care. I'm running the humble guys, and there are legitimately humble guys. There are legitimately guys that don't want to talk to the press. Has anyone ever accomplished what Tim Duncan did? I mean, John Stockton was kind of that kind of guy. But with Tim Duncan, you're talking about a top 10 play. I don't know. You can have your argument, but if he's not in your top 15, you're not even. He's in my top 10. How about he's the starting power forward on the all-time starting five? Yeah, and, and I, I called him when I wrote the, uh, the final thing that he was leaving. I called him the only true nine that I've ever known. You could argue whether he's power forward or center. You add them together, that's what he is. You know, you put him on the court near the basket, and 
one of the great things was how they, you know, they kind of changed their offense. I mean, how much they went through Tim in the beginning, obviously, and then toward the end when he wasn't quite the offensive force, how he became the facilitator of the offense. You know, the bailout guy, the guy that you could do the old-fashioned, throw it into him, work the offense into out. Never mind what he did uh, defensively, and never mind the chemistry that he kept uh, for years. So he was the kind of guy that we in the press sometimes, you, you make the point of, well, you want a guy to talk and you want him to be interesting. But then when he's too much of a self-promoter, then you kind of castigate him for that. Duncan remained loyal to the end, and it was sometimes frustrating dealing with him when you had to. But mm-hmm. over the years, you, you really admire consistency. Yeah. And if anybody had it, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Tim Duncan have to be right at the top of people that were consistent on the court for a, a high number of years and consistent with the way they wanted to be treated and treated people, even if it didn't always please you. Mm. That is a great coda on a remarkable career. Wow. I'm, I'm glad you haven't hung it up, Captain Jack, because your writing <laughs> and your analysis is utterly, utterly indispensable. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Dave. It's been a pleasure. That was Jack McCallum, ladies and gents. Once again, the books by Jack McCallum that I cannot recommend highly enough are Seven Seconds or Less, My Season on the Bench with the Running and Gunning Phoenix Suns, and Dream Team, How Michael Magic, Larry Charles, and the Greatest Team of All Time Conquered the World and Changed the Game of Basketball Forever. Now I've got some choice words about what it would look like if Donald Trump could appoint the sports commissioners of our beloved leagues. So look, the starting point is taking a close look at who Donald Trump is installing in his cabinet. They all happen to be people who want to destroy the very agencies they're being tapped to lead. It's like hiring a team of arsonists to fight forest fires. Just look at it. The proposed Environmental Protection Agency chief does not think climate change is real. The proposed education secretary wants to eradicate public education. The proposed head of the Department of Labor is a fast food magnet bent on crushing the scant labor protections we have. And this is just a sampling. It is manifestly clear that the swamp things are now in charge of the swamp. These appointments make me wonder, what if Trump also had the power to appoint our sports commissioners? How would that look? Let's start with the NFL. I think Trump would appoint Vince McMahon, the chairman and CEO of the World Wrestling Entertainment Corporation, as NFL commissioner. McMahon's first move would be to fire any player who has protested during the national anthem. His second would be to proclaim the era of political correctness in the NFL is over. And he'd invite Washington football team owner Dan Snyder to rename several team mascots after a variety of diverse racial slurs. No more will Native Americans be the only people insulted on NFL Sunday. Vince McMahon would go on to disband an outraged NFL Players Association, reclassifying the players as individual contractors, and he would then end all concussion protocols, dismissing brain injury research as junk science. 
he'd also eliminate the position of team doctor, saying free healthcare and football represents the wussification of this man's game. We're going to make football manly again. In the 2018 season, you would see numerous players die on the field of traumatic brain injury, just as they did at the dawn of football a century earlier. It is later discovered that Commissioner McMahon had taken out life insurance policies on the dead players. The Football League quickly goes out of business. And it would not be the first time that Vince McMahon headed a football league, the XFL, that quickly went out of business. So what about the NBA? Donald Trump's new NBA boss would announce that the league needs red state appeal. He'd proclaim that the players are too thuggish and have too much of that rap music between their ears. All players with tattoos and cornrows would be banned from the game. Inked heroes like LeBron James and Kevin Durant would shock fans by bidding the game goodbye. After LeBron calls the rules racially discriminatory, the new commissioner would say, There's nothing racist about it. That's absurd. White players with tattoos and cornrows are also banned. The commissioner would then ban the 24-second shot clock, calling it discriminatory, saying, How many George Mikans of tomorrow have been kept out of the league because of this perversion to Dr. Naismith's game? He'd also reinstitute the hand-checking rule and a dictate requiring three passes before any shot. The league quickly would go out of business. The new commissioner, if you haven't guessed, is Phil Jackson. And those quotes about players being too thuggish and having too much of that rap music between their ears, those are actual Phil Jackson quotes. In Major League Baseball, Donald Trump would quickly appoint new commissioner Joe Arpaio. Joe Arpaio would close the players' union office at gunpoint and then say, it's time to make baseball American again, even though it's pointed out to him that people in the Caribbean have played baseball since the 1860s and are also, by the way, considered from the Americas. All Latino players are swaddled in pink, chained, and deported. This includes players from Puerto Rico and Latino players born in the United States. Arpaio justifies this by saying, better safe than sorry. Angels owner Art Moreno is also deported to Mexico, even though his family has lived here for four generations. Joe Arpaio also ends the annual April celebration of Jackie Robinson Day, citing Robinson's statement in 1972 that, quote, I cannot stand and sing the anthem. I cannot salute the flag. I know that I am a black man in a white world, end quote. To Arpaio, this means no more Jackie Robinson Day, and it also means unretiring Robinson's number 42, claiming it is, quote, reverse racism against all players who dreamed of being whatever number he was. End quote. When black players protest and threaten to boycott games, Arpaio says, why don't you just start your own league? There's precedent. Without players like Andrew McCutcheon, Manny Machado, and Jose Altuve, Major League Baseball, after 150 years, is closed for business. Now, what about women's sports? Donald Trump appoints himself the executive producer, quote unquote, of all women's sports. The WNBA, the National Women's Soccer League, and Women's World Cup soccer team are immediately disbanded. Professional basketball and soccer are ended, and roller derby, which according to White House sources frightens and confuses Trump, becomes formally criminalized at every amateur and professional level. Trump says he will be making women's sports matter again by giving a $10 billion grant to the Lingerie Football League and implementing compulsory classes in high schools in Foxy Boxing. 
After he destroys Title IX, women start playing sports in underground venues and old abandoned speakeasies refashioned as derby rinks. Now what about NASCAR? This sports institution is left alone. Although its new multi-billion dollar government-funded track in the middle of what used to be Central Park is quickly shuttered. It is now headquarters for the resistance and more derby. Now it's time for our very first Just Stand Down Award, which we've never done on this show. Usually we celebrate athletes who speak up, but this past week some athletes spoke out when they should have at worst remained silent and at best had an entirely different message. So starting point here for me is a quote by Dr. Martin Luther King from 1967 when he was talking about the war in Vietnam, and he said, So we watch Negro and white boys on TV screens in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village, but we realize they would never live on the same block in Detroit. That phrase, brutal solidarity, stood with me when I saw the actions of the Minnesota Golden Gophers football team. So if you haven't heard the latest, here's the deal. After 48 hours of tough talk, the Minnesota football team decided on Saturday to end their strike and play in the Holiday Bowl on December 27th against the Washington State Cougars. Strikes on the part of NCAA athletes are incredibly rare, and usually the cause is rooted in some principle of social justice. This is not one of those times. The players were demanding reinstatement of 10 teammates who'd been accused of taking part in a gang rape. Then, after two days, they folded. It was a meek surrender for a team that had taken an emphatic political stand on a battlefield they had no business fighting upon. Football isn't war, and damn the coaches and couch generals who say otherwise. But I just couldn't help think about Dr. King's words about brutal solidarity when I saw the initial press conference of white and black teammates standing side by side. The Golden Gopher players thought the school suspensions were unjust since the police reviewed the evidence and declined to make any arrests. The alleged rape had been filmed by one of the players on his phone, and authorities said that the video showed, in the words of a police investigator, that the woman who came forward, quote, does not appear to be upset by the sexual activity and does not indicate that she wants it to stop, end quote. Yet the survivor of this incident says she was inebriated to the point of blacking out and sexual contact with only two of the players was consensual. The police may not have pressed charges, but the players were found to have violated the campus's code of conduct. And the sentencing, which would be suspension or expulsion, was not due to happen until after the Holiday Bowl, but the school decided independently to make the players sit for the December 27th bowl game, and in response, the players called for a strike. Now, after the players refused to play, their coach, Tracy Clays, tweeted, Have never been more proud of our kids. I respect their rights and support their effort to make a better world. A better world. My God. I contacted Abir Saida. She's the student body president at the University of Minnesota. And this is what she said to me. She said, I certainly resonate with the experience of poor communication and transparency when it comes to working with campus officials, so I understand if that is contributing to the players' frustrations. It is, however, really important to recognize that there is a lot of information about students that legally cannot be shared. 
And that information is also where much of this speculation lies. With that in mind, even ignoring all the facts and nuance, it needs to be recognized that there is deep symbolism in this act of solidarity the football players are showing with their suspended teammates that, to the many survivors of sexual assault across college campuses, is a harrowing reminder of the power associated with protecting rape culture. To survivors, this feels familiar. To those who thought about speaking up, this silences. We must believe, love, support, center, and be in solidarity with survivors, especially when the power stratification is against them. Fact of the matter is that a Big Ten university like ours wouldn't suspend 10 football players during the season without a strong reason. In fact, historically, they would have all the incentive to try not to, end quote. Those are strong words, but none of them deterred the team from turning this into a warped, at best confused, at worst pernicious version of social protest. Team spokesperson, wide receiver Drew Walatarski, said at their initial press conference, We got no answers to our questions about why these kids are suspended when they were found not guilty by the law. We are concerned that our brothers have been named publicly with reckless disregard in violation of their constitutional rights. We are now compelled to speak for our team and take back our program, end quote. Where do you even begin with this? His full statement is a mess, not recognizing or understanding the difference between the university's finding and a separate decision by the school to suspend them. The team is upset about the latter, but was demanding to invalidate the former. This knowingly or not turned their strike into a direct action aimed against a university's right to have a code of conduct around sexual assault. In addition, Wolitarski's statement that the players were just not found guilty by the law is simply not true. I spoke to Jessica Luther, a guest on our show, Edge of Sports, and author of the book on sportsmanlike conduct, college football and the politics of rape. This is what she said to me. She said the police and district attorney decided not to charge them or prosecute the case, which means that guilt or non-guilt will never be determined under the law. Beyond that, the university's Office of Equal Opportunity and Affirmative Action has a much lower standard of proof to determine the violation of the student conduct code, which is preponderance of evidence, than does a prosecutor or jury in a criminal court, which is, of course, beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm unsure if the players have a handle on that context and yet chose to make this bold public statement in which they claim the process was unfair to them. I find it distressing since they chose to use their collective power to advocate for change, end quote. Then there is the support of their coach, Tracy Clays. He's been on the coaching staff since 2011. That means he's been there for numerous sexual harassment complaints against the football team, as well as a report of retaliation by the football team against whoever came forward. So this is an ongoing issue that hasn't been addressed. And therefore, what the hell is Coach Clay's talking about when he says they're trying to make a better world? He knows there's a history of this in this locker room, and yet he's turning a blind eye to that to support his players on really specious moral grounds. Now, invariably, I've heard from some folks who've said to me that these players should be supported for their act of multiracial solidarity against their school's very arbitrary conduct policy. One person emailed me, and there were more than a few messages I received that echoed this sentiment. I want to read it. They said, 
Here are college athletes who are treated like indentured servants, organizing and using their collective power to right what they believe is a wrong. It's black and white players coming together to make this point. Why are you against that? Well, the best answer for that, I think, can be found in a conversation I had with Kianga Taylor, who's the author of the book, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. And she put it perfectly. She said, Solidarity to subvert a rape investigation into several of their teammates is not really solidarity, but evidence of persisting sexism, sexual violence, and the continuing crisis of alcohol abuse, confusion over consent, and men who think women's bodies are their domain on campuses across the country. Yes, we need solidarity. No, we're not looking for solidarity in defense of a possible rape. End quote. It's a good thing. The players step back from this boycott, removing its poison from a sports yapping news cycle defined by false equivalency and embracing debate. What they were doing was a perversion of every action by college athletes who have stood up to the rank exploitation of the NCAA. It was a slap in the face to the football team at the University of Missouri who went on strike last year in support of the Black Lives Matter movement on campus. To even call this solidarity is an insult to everyone at the University of Minnesota who has engaged in a series of high-profile anti-racist struggles throughout the last several years. And by the way, during those struggles, the football team was silent. There's one chilling coda to this story. The team demanded a meeting with the Board of Regents on Friday to discuss the suspensions. And their goal, they said in a statement, was to, quote, make the program great again, end quote. The phrase in this political climate is chilling. It speaks to the fear that having this sexual predator president in the White House means a cultural shift towards a backlash against those trying to end campus rape. That fear is understandable. But it is also manifestly clear that the brutal solidarity in the Minnesota locker room has been nurtured since long before this election season. Now it's time for the Edge of Sports Hotline. We do have one call that I wanted us to get to about a story that I've been emailed and tweeted and messaged about pretty much nonstop in the last week. And I want to address this issue head on. But first, let's listen to the call. Hey, Dave, this is Jim Osborne calling. Did you see the story on uh, CNN uh, today with uh, Jim Brown meeting Donald Trump? I'd really be uh, interested in knowing what your take is and the nature of Mr. Brown's comments. I don't know if uh, he'd be willing to come on your show, but uh, it would be a very interesting broadcast for sure. Thank you so much, Jim, for that call. First, a little bit of background so folks know this. First and foremost, people might know I've been working on a political biography of Jim Brown for the last uh, three, four years, and hopefully that'll come out in 2017. Uh, Second, if people didn't hear this news earlier this month, Trump sat down with Jim Brown and former NFL player Ray Lewis, and Brown left the meeting saying, I fell in love with Trump because he really talks about helping black people. And then Jim Brown was on television that night with right-wing Fox News talker Sean Hannity to sing Trump's praises. 
Now, people who love Jim Brown for his black power rectitude and his rebel persona, I mean, absolutely recoiled. I can't even tell you some of the messages I got. Like people got in touch with me talking about how their hearts were broken by seeing Jim Brown sit down with somebody who winks at the KKK. It just made people so upset. Uh, Jameel Smith, uh, who's a Cleveland journalist, he got in touch with me and he said, my heart stopped. That's what he said. My heart stopped seeing Jim Brown praise Donald Trump. But I got to say, if you understand Jim Brown's actual political beliefs over the last 50 years and not the beliefs we project onto him, this meeting with Trump should have surprised no one. Like Donald Trump, accusations of sexism and violence against women has dogged Jim Brown's entire life. But it's even deeper than that. There are also two people who share a common contempt for social programs, for a Democratic Party who they both argue take black votes for granted. And they also share the belief that anything that can make money is somehow deep down justified. And that has always been Jim Brown's politics. He supported Richard Nixon in 1968. He was part of the black power movement of the 1960s, but always on the right wing business end of the black power movement. He was never a panther. He was never somebody who espoused sympathies for radical politics, socialist politics. He was a critic of Martin Luther King and the idea of marching for civil rights. He believed in business. He believed in unions being quiet giving seed money to black businessmen to develop the black community. And that's something that Donald Trump has expressed a similar belief in. And when you factor the fact that Jim Brown is standing there with Ray Lewis, you know, a person who was vicious against Colin Kaepernick for taking a knee during the anthem, Ray Lewis, a person who said that black or white is irrelevant, which is a hell of a thing to say after the most racist campaign in any of our lifetimes. I mean, my goodness, you could see why it made people's hearts stop. You can see why it upset so many people. But again, the thing about Jim Brown is he's been such a symbol throughout the last 50 years of rectitude and resistance and standing up to racism that oftentimes the symbol has overshadowed the actuality of what his political beliefs actually are. And if you know those beliefs, then you know that meeting with Donald Trump and showing up on Sean Hannity, well, tragically, that fits Jim Brown's history. And if you want to read that backed up by 120,000 words of argument and quotes and research, I'll have a book coming out next year. Working title, Last Man Standing. Well, that's all for this week on Edge of Sports. Thank you so much to Jack McCallum. Thank you to my producer, Dan Bloom. Thank you for everybody out there listening. If you ever want to call and leave something, ugh, if you want to call and leave a message to the Edge of Sports hotline about what you think are the best sports and politics stories of 2016, don't hesitate to call. It's 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. You can always reach me, Dave Zirin, over Twitter, at Edge of Sports. Everybody out there, have a great new year. Please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.